And I want you parents to be, I just want to congratulate you. I know the Lord is honored by your effort to lead them in that. And uh, please, so way to go. Well done. Uh, well, okay, I love Proverbs. So you get a proverb before we get to the message. Um, I'm giving you a little extra in it today. Today's uh, being the 14th. I chose verse four. That where no oxen are, the trough is clean. Picture that, right? Okay, you get why, right? Right? Are you with me today? Okay, okay. Um, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. Okay, what that proverb basically says is that when you decide to put in the extra effort to accomplish big things, you're going to deal with some messes along the way, right? That's what that proverb basically says. And it's worth it. That's what that scripture says. Um, um, here's another proverb. This is an African proverb. Some of you um, may know or may have known John Garlock. Um, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but he was a preacher from, from Texas, and um, he always started his messages with an African proverb, and I, one day I, I got them from him. So here's another one that kind of goes with the first proverb. Every cow has a tail. <laughs> That's kind of the shortened way of saying the same thing, right? <laughs> so... Um, um, Imagine there's a wedding and you're the groom and um, you've provided for everything. You're, you, you have this unwavering commitment for your bride. You, you have a love from her, for her that has just, just goes back and back. And, and it was a choice that you made. And it's, you, you're never going to back up from that choice. It was, um, it's gonna, you're going to keep it forever. And, and you chose a specific date. You, you chose a, um, there's, you, you publish the date in writing. It's not a secret. It's, it's open invitation. The date, location, everybody knows about it. You make all these preparations for it. You build up for it, and you prepare your friends for it. Um, you've got that all sorted, and your, your bride talks about the day. She anticipates the day. She's been waiting for you, and you arrive on that day, groom, and you're exactly on time in exactly the right place, and every detail is exactly and precisely like you planned and, and, and set it out for, but when you get there, your bride's not there. In fact, well, she's kind of there, but she's indifferent. She's forgotten about the date. She doesn't recognize the date and hasn't really cared enough to remember the big important thing that you've, you've, you've prepared for. Even so, even so, your love doesn't diminish for her. It's absolutely steadfast, and you're going to drive right past that, even though there's this mountain of humiliation that day, and, and, uh, and there's this frustration maybe, or this disappointment, and um, what am I going to do now to pick up the pieces of this? But you still hold, hold, hold into your heart the, this sense of, th of thinking about the future and the hope that you have for this relationship with your bride. I love Palm Sunday. And um, it, it really celebrates who Christ is and why he deserves our adoration and our praise. And uh, for me, you know, as you, as you already know, it's kind of a, it's a much bigger deal for me than just another Bible event and another holiday on the calendar. It's not you know, the equal of any of the other dates, I think. Um, there's no other dates are the equal of it except for Easter. And it um, it's just fills me with faith. And I'm going to share that why with you. Now, um, I, I'm going to tell you a couple of things about my, my, my past. Just those of you who are maybe new to the church, um, I've told the church this kind of stuff before. You know, I was pretty difficult in my pre-Christ days. Um, I'm still difficult. <laughs> um, but, but not like that, at least I think. That's like I tell myself. But... Um, um, before I knew Christ, the, the, my viewpoint was boil it down in a test tube and prove it to me or else it just isn't so. 
And um, you got to prove it. I got to see it with my, I got to poke my finger. I got to see it, touch it, know it. It's got to happen in front of me or it's just your word. Sorry, you're my friend and I love you and all, but no, you got to see it for myself. I was what Jesus described in two places, and you can read about this in Matthew 12 and in Matthew 16, where he talks about an evil and an adulterous generation that requires a sign. That was me. It just was me too. Did you agree really out loud that much, honey? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> she knew me then. <laughs> it's true. And the thing was that although I wanted a sign, as do so many people, Jesus had already revealed himself in so many ways over and over again. In fact, God has revealed himself to every single person who's alive now and who's ever been. And he talks about how people know this and they still kind of suppress it. They, they know what's true about God and they suppress it. We read about this in Romans chapter one. For as God has shown the truth to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Every person is one of the things that have been made. Every dog, every cat, every rock, every tree, everything that was made clearly sees and knows. We think of rocks as inanimate objects that can't think. Scripture says they know who the creator is. And we'll see signs of that, a little signs. I'm not suggesting that your rock is smart. Go ahead and get a pet rock if you want. Um, but, but, okay, so they're made, everything understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they're without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The scripture talks about what this process that happens in the hearts and in the intellect of people who reject the truth about God. Not only do they reject him as savior, but it says they suppress the truth about him. They twist the truth into lies. They twist the truth into philosophies in an attempt to somehow justify either the way they want to live or what they want to believe or what they want to do with their life, whatever. They just want to pretend who God isn't and go from there. And it happens today, just like it did in the times of Jesus. You know, people who are, you maybe you know some that are supportive of Jesus or God on the outside, but really inside there really isn't a relationship and they really don't think about things God. And, and, and they look at things and they think about theology or they think about God stuff and they say, you know, God, I, um, I, uh, I'm a believer in all that kind of stuff, but I'm really not that happy with the way you are leading this life of mine and I'm not that happy with the way you're running this world. So... Um, if you're God, who, who, if you're really God, I need you to show me some signs. You need to, I need to see it. You got to prove it. And here's his answer. God knows people think this. He, here's his answer in Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying they were, they were kind of trying to debate Jesus. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign is going to be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's basically said, you know what? For thousands of years, I've proved time after time after time. You know this. You people know this. This is our history. It's written down. You know about all this. It's true. I'm not giving you any more signs. You got one sign left. I'm going to give you one more sign, he says. And that's the sign of Jonah. For um, 
As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's, gonna be, he's saying, I'm going to be dead for three days and three nights, and I'm going to get out. I'm going to get out of death. And this, 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 is, this is not the only time they press him. They, they had the same, a very similar conversation, and you read about that one in Matthew 16. It's Matthew 12, Matthew 16, two different events. Same question. Hey, show us a sign. Jesus says, no sign. We're done with signs. The last sign is going to be the same thing as Jonah. You watch. He's saying, you just watch and see. There's another sign coming. You're not going to, this will knock your socks off if you're paying attention. That's what he's saying. And here, he's just, I don't know if he was thinking this, but I'm thinking this. He's thinking, you know, I just think there just comes a time when, when more facts and more evidence don't make the truth truer. It's already true. It's binary. It's true or it's not true. There's no, uh, you got your truth. It's true or it's not true. He's God or he's not. And more facts and more evidence also won't change a heart that refuses to hear and see it. Just won't do it. And um, <laughs> even though God had, had provided this physical and historical proof over and over again, um, I personally had to do Terry had to do what every other believer has had to do at some point, and that's take a step forward into faith and make a choice to believe. I had to just make that choice. And it was only after I chose to believe and to trust um, it, Jesus with my life, with my eternity, you know, surrendering lordship of my life and my forever to him, that I began to understand some things that, that before me I just didn't really get. And I started to see the proof of the evidence that God had been exposing all along. And it's evidence that can clearly be seen. So Palm Sunday is this really big deal. Um, and it displays some real proof that culminates in his resurrection. For his three days and three nights, he was in the belly of fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? So Jesus is in the tomb for three days and three nights. And he proved once again that he's God. He proves that he's the author of life by getting out, stepping right up out of death. He just gets out. It's like, okay, you get out of bed, I'm going to get out of death. And he just steps right out of death. And today, we're going to just spend a couple of minutes in Scripture, and I'm going to show you, um, I've had requests about this from people, hey, would you do that thing again, share some of those things again? And um, so I've said, okay, I'll do it. The time will come, so today's the day. And if you've heard some of these things before, okay, it's good for you. Hear it again, okay? <laughs> and uh, if you haven't heard this, I, I pray that you would let the Holy Spirit speak to you and see if these things aren't actual scientific and mathematical proof. I believe they are, but okay, so we're going to see that Jesus is God here. People who say you can't prove the Bible are not students of the Bible, because you can. There, are, there is secular agreement about the facts that are here, and they bring you to a conclusion that can't be denied. So back on April 6th of the year 32 on our calendar, the disciples, now, and this isn't just the 12 disciples that you know about or the, the group of 70. This is many, many, many more, the group of people that were following along and, and he was teaching. And they knew the scripture. They knew the Hebrew scriptures and they knew the words that were being shouted that day along the, the roadside. So they were, it was basically Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They got that the people were shouting the psalm. They got, so they knew what they were doing. There was a, it was common knowledge. Hey, we're proclaiming this guy is the Messiah and they were worshiping this man coming in at this moment. A lot of people were doing this. And of course, the religious leaders of the day were not happy about that because they were just not on board. Jesus is coming. He's coming. And while that's all going on, the people around in the city were doing all kinds of different things like you were doing this morning. 
Some people were preparing their hearts for the Lord. I heard people in here worshiping and practicing worship, and they were in a place in their mind. There was a time I wasn't doing that this morning. I was cooking eggs, and my mind was on not burning the eggs, okay? And so I was, the people were going about their day, and there were some people who were indifferent. Hey, there's a fuss. I don't care. The Seahawks are going to be on, and I'm not missing this. And there were other people who were going, you know, I can record the Seahawks and catch it later. And, um, and there were other people going, hey, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name. There's all kinds of stuff going on. Some of the people saw it going on, and they were angry about it. Okay, so Luke 19. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, so he's just drawing near the descent, so he's just cresting the top of the hill. You get the picture here. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 19. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus is coming. And here's the deal about Jerusalem at this point. This was... This was um, this was the, the Passover, and they were required by Jewish law to go back to the, this place. And so Jerusalem at the time had a population of probably 80,000 people. Consider Lewis County, population of 80,000. But for the Passover, people from all around the countryside were heading in. The city swelled from 80 to a quarter of a million to a half of a million to over a million people. Picture picking up everybody who lives in Pierce County, all of Pierce County, and sticking them right here right now. Kind of crowded, right? The place, people are everywhere. And Jesus is coming. And there are crowds. And he's got on his heart every one of those people. And you and me. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and he said to them, I I tell you, (laughs) this is an uphill war for you to get me to get them quiet. He's basically saying, because if these should stop, if they should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I'll bet you many people think that's a metaphor. I don't. I believe the earth would have cracked and groaned if the people wouldn't worship God. The earth would have worshiped him. The earth does, I believe. I believe scripture says that. All the earth shall sing his praise. I think, you know, scientists have listened to the radio waves from the aurora borealis and there are certain times and moments where it creates these beautiful melodies, these tunes when the wind blows at my house and the trees go, you know, you could just say it's the wind going through the trees and say, yeah, that is a fact. But I believe that the earth is worshiping its creator. I think the rocks know. And I think that if, if, if we won't worship him, the earth says, I know who created me. <laughs> so I think the rocks would have yelled. That might've been kind of cool to see. Don't know. I don't know that they would have yelled in English. I don't know what they would have done, but... Anyway, it might not have been good for the people who weren't. Anyway, so um, he's saying no. You know, and, and now as, as he drew near, he saw the city. And this moment comes because the bride isn't ready. And he weeps. I'm still waiting for somebody, one of the kids to come up and do a memory verse, Jesus wept. <laughs> it's an easy one. But if you do, prepare for me to say, when did that happen? What was the second? Okay, so you got to earn your ice cream cone. Did you hear the excitement about the ice cream cone up here in the front row? Mom, look, I got ice cream cone. It's great. Whatever it takes, get the word of God in them. Give them an ice cream cone. It's a great reward. And he wept saying, if you had known, even you, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace. He's saying, you know, the things of God. It's, I have a, 
I'm, I know the thoughts I think about you. I think about your future and your hope. If you, even you, had known the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Hidden from your eyes. Do we understand that when we have a stubborn heart, it can take us to a place where we can no longer see blessing. We can never actually see it. And maybe you're wondering, well, how should they have known? Because somehow, apparently, God expects people to know his plan. Jesus expected the city to know. And he, and he had taken the time to share things with him openly. Okay, so 500 years before this, Daniel wrote this amazing prophecy in the Bible about Palm Sunday. In fact, these prophecies in the book of Daniel are so specific they are such strong proof that Jesus is God that many skeptics have said, hey, the book of Daniel, that was written after this Palm Sunday because nobody could have had those details right. So they reject that Daniel knew this stuff in advance. But there's this historical problem with that argument. Um, you know, the book of Daniel, if, it, if the book of Daniel, um, um, you know, how, how could it have been so accurate that far in advance? Well, so they say it's, it was written later. But the problem is this. The entire Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, Jewish people would call the Tanakh. It's their, it's their scriptures. It's their scrolls. And it was mostly originally written in Hebrew. By the time, a few hundred years before Jesus walked on the earth, by that time, the people had kind of stopped speaking Hebrew as their native language. They were mostly speaking Greek. And that had to do with the fact that they were conquered a few times. So, so that the people could understand God's scriptures, a whole bunch of scholars got together, about 70 of them got together in Alexandria, and they took about 15 years to take those Hebrew scriptures and translate them into Greek so that people could read it and understand the language of God's word, right? And that's called, that, that version translated is called the Septuagint, which is a big fancy word for 70. And it basically means that um, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek. You with me tracking on this? The thing is, that's a historical fact, and it was accomplished about 300 years before Jesus. So some 300 years before uh, Jesus um, rode this cult into the city and fulfilled all these scriptures, the book of Daniel had already been translated from Hebrew into Greek. There's no argument, really, uh, any serious scholar about the, um, the authenticity of the, the dates of the book of Daniel. Well, let's take a look at it. Daniel chapter 9. Remember, this is written in the year 538 BC. This is a prophetic word. While I was speaking in prayer, Gabriel, this is the name of an angel. By the way, the, the scripture only names three angels in the entire Bible. Gabriel, who is always a messenger, uh, Michael, who always does battle for, the, for, for, the, the, for Israel. Okay, so Gabriel informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. I'm going to teach you so you can understand something here. And now the Holy Spirit, who has given us the scriptures, has given us the opportunity to learn the same thing. At the beginning of your supplications, when you started praying, the command went out, and I've come to tell you for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, here we go. Now, time out for a minute. Um, if I was to say to you the word 10 years, you would have a very clear understanding of what 10 years means. I might instead say to you a year plus a year plus a year plus a year. And if I did it 10 times, you'd go 10 years. You'd get that too, right? I could also say to you a decade. The word decade is shorthand for 10 years. We all understand that there's more than one way to say this. Okay, 
in their culture, they had a word, shabua, which meant sevened. And you could have a shabua of donuts, a shabua of days, which we call a week, which is the actual word that we'll see in scripture, but you could also have a shabua of years or months. Okay, so this literally means sevens. When you read it in scripture, it says weeks, but it really means chunk of seven. Okay, all right. Verse 24. 70 Shabuah, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. 70 weeks are determined, or 70 sevens are determined for your people to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. So what that's saying is that this time period is to finish up and make payment for and reconcile some sin. And there's something specific that this is about that I'm not going to go into today. It's just the time frame that we're caring about here for now. So that's going to happen to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, as soon as the command is given, go back and rebuild the city. From then until Messiah the Prince, Mashiach Nagid, until you see the anointed king. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's another way of saying 69 weeks, right? 69 chunks of seven. The streets shall be built again. The wall, even in troublesome times, it's going to be hard to do. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. The word there, cut off, actually literally means executed, killed. And you see the same word in um, Leviticus 7 and, and, and Psalm 37. It probably is several places it means, it means executed. But not for himself. He's going to be executed, but not because of what he did. Jesus didn't die for himself. He died for you and me. Here in the Old Testament is an example of God's plan of salvation right there tucked in. And the people of the prince who is to come, that's somebody different. The prince who is to come is not a good guy. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, and that scripture goes on. And and so now, can you just leave that up for a minute? Because we're going to look at this, especially that underlined part. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be this time period of of these weeks, what are called weeks. Now, God in this instance is giving a mathematical prophecy. Someone's going to make a command on a date, a specific time period, measurable, calculatable, and on the end of that time period, something else is going to happen. Okay. God has now painted himself right into a corner because we can count. Right, and we have calendars, and so we're going to find out whether this thing that uh, came and D- Daniel declared as the word of God is smoke and chrome or the real deal. What do you think the chances are? I'm going to come up here and spend a Sunday morning on something that's smoke and chrome. Probably not good, but let's prove it. Let's let's just let's just keep going here. This is specific time. It's a mathematically exact number. It's it's this verifiable prophecy. And I got two questions for you to consider before we do some simple math. And I'm not going to spend much time on the math. You know, nobody said there'd be any math. I know some of you are going, good, do not spend time on the math. I got to do a little bit, but not much. Um, But anyway, two questions for you to think about. If we can scientifically prove this prophecy to be true, 
Something's going to happen in advance, and it's this specific. What's that say about the author? Well, let's, but let's say if it, we can prove that it's not true. It's easier to disprove this, right? It don't, it, there's only one day something has to happen. If it doesn't happen, then the author is it's hogwash. It's fake. Throw out everything else he tells you. But if he says this, and it is true, okay, this author who authored this knows stuff outside of in the future. He, he knows stuff outside of my, because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I, 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 I expect the sun to come up. I expect things. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. None of you do. You don't know if you'll get to tomorrow. We just don't know. So, okay, this is going to tell us something. So let's see if it can be verified. To calculate the number of days, pretty simple. From the beginning of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, so every ancient calendar, um, if you look into this historically, they had a 360-day year. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but you can study it. They all did. Uh, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the, the Etruscans, all of them, all of them, all of them, Babylonians, the Babylonians in particular, th- from them we get 360 degrees in a circle, 360 days on a calendar, 60 minutes in an hour, 60 seconds. I mean, we get a lot of 360 stuff, but um, anyway, so um, they pretty much use that. And also the Hebrew Bible uses a 360-day year. You'll see this in, in the Old Testament and New Testament, Genesis 7, Genesis 8, um, the Revelation, all lots of, lots of places. So here's the simple math. Seven weeks plus 62 weeks is 69 weeks. If a week is a group of seven, 69 times seven, that's 483. And in this instance, they're talking years. These are years. So this group of weeks is years. We're talking about 483 years. Okay, so far, so far. Okay, 483 years. If it's 360 days in a year, we're going to boil this down to how many days elapsed because that's the lowest common denominator. Math teachers say, good job, Terry. Get us down to the simplest. Um, we multiply 483 times 360 days per year, and the number of days we're looking for is 173,880 days. Okay with me so far? Just trust me. It, it, you can check the math later. So, so here we go. A lot of days. But when do we start the clock? When does the stopwatch start? To know that, we've got to know when the command was given to restore Jerusalem. There are several commands to go back and restore in the Old Testament. Most of them pertain to restore and rebuild the temple. But there's one command. I won't spend much time on those other ones. There's one command. Um, that, that you'll, see, you'll see them mostly in the book of Ezra, all these other ones to rebuild the temple. But if you know your Bible, you know the book of Nehemiah, and um, you'll see that um, there was a decree to go ahead and restore the city and it was in troubled times, just like the prediction said. In fact, when they rebuilt the city, they, they were told you keep a shovel in one hand and a, and, a, and a sword in the other hand. It was troubled times. It was hard for them to rebuild the city. People didn't want them to. Anyway, that command was, it's a historical fact. Secular history will tell you that Artaxerxes Longimanus said on March 14th, 445 BC, go, go rebuild the city. Click, start the clock. On that date, go forward. And uh, we're looking for 173,880 days. The date that the terminus of this is, we've already talked about, that's the date Jesus enters in. He's declaring he's Mashiach Nagid. And that date is on our calendars as well, April 6th of 32 AD. If the prophecy is true, April 6th, 32 AD has to be 173,880 days after the command. You tracking with me? Okay, it's a simple math now. We consider our calendar, the number of days there. We've got to calculate the fact that we have a 365-day calendar and we have leap years and leaps. So we've got, we got to put all that stuff into it. 
Um, and here's the quick math. The number of years, 476 years, stick that part up, would you? Do we have that? This is, says on our calendar, um, I'm sorry, I'm probably making things difficult for the people in the back. This has um, the, cal- no, um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay, add the next part. I won't talk, talk you through all that, but there it is, the years, the days on the calendar month from, because it was the same day at the start, and then the leap years, you add all that in there, and here's the days that you get. You can check this out later, or if you want me to, I'll send it to you. 173,880 days. Seven weeks and 62. It's correct. The prophecy is correct to the exact day. To the day. It's not close. It's not within a year. It's not within a month. It's on the button. Gabriel's margin of error here is zero. Whew. <laughs> I, I've, I've been through this so many times that it still sends chills every time I think that, about this. It's like, okay, so, and then here's another factor for us to consider, Jesus. If you know your New Testament, you know he would perform these miracles and people would kind of go bonkers. They would go, hey, let's make him king. And every time, every single time he said, no, don't tell other people about this. Mine hour has not yet come. He would say, no, keep it to yourself. Don't do this. But then, on one day, he arranges it. We call it the triumphal entry. You, know, you see it in all four Gospels, uh, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12. It's in all four of them. And exactly to the date, 173,880, after March 14th, 445 BC, he not only allows them to call him king, he actually arranges it. Go get the colt, bring it to me, we're going to go in, and here we go. People who say that Jesus never claimed he was God, they don't know the scripture because there's a great example where he says, hey, I'm it, I'm him, I'm the one. And he's very plainly saying he's the Messiah here, the Mashiach Nagid, the anointed king. So back to our text. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when, oh, Jesus is going to prophesy about something in the future. Let's see what he has to say about the future. Your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus prophesies here about the the destruction of Jerusalem, and then he wept because they had missed what was going on there. Jesus expected them to be looking and to be aware and waiting about the things that make for your peace. He expects that of you and me too. He expects us to be looking. He expects our worldview to be This is kind of a mess, but God's going to come in and he's going to make a difference. He's going to make a difference. He's going to make a difference now, and when he arrives, he's going to make a difference then. Okay, so Jesus makes this prediction. Check your history books. 37 years later, a guy named Titus Vespasian, he goes in and he lays siege to Jerusalem. With the 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th Roman legions, he surrounds the city, just as predicted by Jesus. And the um, historian Josephus, a guy named Josephus, um, writes about this. He, in, as, as the city had a siege and, um, and, and people died, he estimates that 1.1 million people died in this siege 
of the Romans. And at, at somewhere, who knows how it started, but at some point, the city collapses and some Roman soldier lights the temple on fire. The place burns to the ground. Of course, it doesn't fall to the ground because it's stone. But the temple was something special from a worldly standpoint because some of the walls were actually layered with gold. There were all kinds of instruments in there, the labor. There was all of these implements that were part of what was kept in the temple and they were made of solid gold. There was a lot of gold. Well, when Vespasian heard that the place was burned, to the gr- burned up, he was upset because he wanted the spoils and he made an order. He ordered that the temple be disassembled stone by stone so that all that gold could be collected. Jesus said, they will not leave one stone upon another. Jesus' margin of error, zero. (sighs) Why was the temple destroyed? Not because they lost the war. The temple was destroyed because they did not know the time of their visitation. It's so costly to ignore God's plans. It's just so costly. His plans are good. But the enemy of our souls has an alternative that he wants to lay out upon your life. And it's so costly. 500 years in advance, Gabriel gives Daniel this date to expect the Mashiach Nagid, and it happens. And God's people, most of them, didn't care enough to be ready or looking. And God held them accountable to know that he was coming. The Bible is full. It's actually full of all kinds of mathematical and scientific and verifiable proof that Jesus is God. Uh, here's a couple more. So, so those of you who say, hey, share that other stuff. I'm going to do a couple of those right now, and then we're going to be done. Here's one. Here's a list that you see um, details in the Old Testament about who the Messiah would be, what it would be. And this is all written centuries in advance. Here are eight prophecies. There are over 300, but these are the classic eight that get shared in a moment like this because they're easily understood. Uh, Micah uh, chapter 5, verse 2 talks about Bethlehem. It says, out of you will come an eternal ruler, is what the word means there. Zechariah 9, we saw that one. The king's going to enter on a donkey. We've seen that happen. Zechariah 11 talks about 30 pieces of silver, which was the price that was paid. That was the bribe given to Judas to betray Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11 also talks about, it makes mention of the temple and the potter. And what happens with the temple and the potter is that the 30 pieces of silver are thrown down. The money is used um, to buy um, the potter's field. And, and the reason that the, the money was not kept by the priest was because their custom and their, their, their rules prevented them from keeping what was, would be considered blood money. It was blood money. So they bought this potter's field, and it was called a potter's field because the potter had owned it and had extracted all of the clay. That's a rabbit trail. I'm not going to go there, but it was a potter's field. Zechariah 13, here's another one. He, would, he talks about the wounds in his hands. Isaiah 53 talks about the fact that, uh, that he would present no defense even though he's innocent. You know, Scripture tells us that like a lamb led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53 talks about going to the grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Going to the grave, he, he was crucified and there was a thief to his left and his right with the wicked, but he was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Psalm 22 says that, that uh, basically describes him being crucified before crucifixion had been invented. He said, they'll pierce my hands and my feet, Psalm twenty two sixteen. 16. These, these details are specific. And you can take any one of these and say, well, what's the chances that any person would meet any one of these? So if he's to come from Bethlehem, well, what's the total population of the earth forever, ever? So far, all of history up to today, 
estimates are around 107 billion people. So the person, and what's the population ever from Jerusalem? You can say half a million people have come from there. Do some math and you'll get an odds of somebody coming from, from Bethlehem and there's one part of a combinational probability computation. Man, I'm glad I got that out of my mouth. <laughs> but it's, there's a way to calculate what's the probability on any one of these. And you keep going and you keep going. The probability mathematically of anybody meeting and satisfying these eight, all eight of them, would be represented by a chance of one in, not in 10 or one in 100, but one in, and then the number is 10 with 28 zeros after it. Worse than the lottery, by a long margin. <laughs> Leave that up for a second. The number of people who have ever lived on the earth is 107 with only nine zeros after it. So you could take off those first three columns and ninths, and then it's still got 19 zeros after it. It's one in, I mean, it's just crazy, impossible odds that anybody can meet those eight, and there are over 300, and he met them all. Jesus fulfills these specifications beyond any really competent dispute. It's just really, you, you just have to refuse to see it. You have to refuse to see it to not see it. Then there's this other one that I... I I know people have asked me to share, and I'll share this one with you again today too. And this is the genealogy from um, Genesis um, chapter 5. The first generations, the scripture says in Genesis chapter 5, so-and-so begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so, and these are their names. And we're just going to list them in their names. And um, their names were a little different than us. You know, we think when we name our child, it's what's the cool name going to be? And of course, the cool name was, oh, let's name a child. Terry would be a cool name. Let's <laughs> name him Terry because that is a name that will last. <laughs> I hate it when people say, is that spelled T-E-R-I? No, that's the chick version of my cool name. <laughs> Their names had meanings. It wasn't just, you know, sorry, mom. I mean, I, I, I know you didn't mean to give me a girl's name. Um, I'm fine with it. I know I'm, I'm, I'm not a girl. Okay, so... Um, nothing wrong with girls. I'm, I'm married to one. <laughs> Don't look at her. Did that, is that better? Okay, so. Um, immature. Why am I doing this? Don't know. I'm talking to myself. I'm not getting answers. This is a waste of time too. Okay, so here we are in um, Genesis chapter five. These are the first generations recorded and these names have meanings. And they were important. This is how they did it. It was meanings. Okay. Adam means man. Adam begat Seth. Seth means appointed. Eve said, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. Remember that whole story. So Seth means appointed. Seth begot Enosh, which means mortal. Enosh begot Canaan or Kenan, depending how you would spell it, which means sorrow. What a name. I'm going to have a little boy named Sorrow. Sorrow has a son named Mahalalel. The Hallels are the praises. You f see them, and that's another word that you would see if you study, and it means the, the Hallels are, uh, con are contained in the Psalms. There are a lot of the Psalms that are the Hallels. Mahalalel means the blessed God. That's what that name means. But Mahalalel begot Jared or Yared, which means shall come down. He begot Enoch, which means commencement. Commencement address on the cap and gown. It, it, it literally means teaching. It means teaching. Enoch begat Methuselah, which comes from two root words, which mean death and to bring. 
his death shall bring. Methuselah begat Lamech, which means despairing, our book of Lamentations, despairing. And Lamech begat Noah, which means to bring relief or comfort. And here's the thing. When you take all of these names and create a sentence out of them, you get this. Man appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. It's the gospel. It's the story of broken people being saved by a loving God. And it's the sentence. Here it is in the Old Testament, the scriptures of the Jewish people, the plan of salvation. Now you tell me, was that just a literary coincidence? It just happens to be in the first 10 names? Why were the first 10 names? They were in there several places. Why a specific chapter to line them all up to make it obvious? I don't know, literary coincidence? Maybe. Or maybe the Jewish priests of the day contrived, hey, let's list these names here, but we'll put the names in in a way that actually gives the story of salvation, which we don't believe in. (laughs) I, I don't know. This is nothing less than the thumbprint of the Holy Spirit saying, look closely into my word because there's stuff hidden in here, not like secrets. It's, 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 it's a joy to see how the Holy Spirit puts his thumbprint in his word. It's nothing less than miraculous proof in my mind. So, I mean, just what we've talked about today, proof that Jesus is God. This is a little, you know, Zechariah predicts king's gonna come, righteous and salvation on a colt, riding on a colt, Correct. Gabriel gives Daniel this very specific mathematical process that you can correct. Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple stone by stone. Correct. He fulfills over 300 prophecies, every single one of them, not just the eighth I showed you. The mathematics on that would be nuts. I I haven't even tried it. And, and, And God paints the plan of salvation into this list of names. The first 10 consecutive generations the ancestors of everybody living since Noah. <laughs> These are our ancestors. These are your grandpas. It's, and their names tell you the salvation plan of, of the gospel. Romans 1, verses 19 and 20 says, if God has shown the truth to them. For since the creation of the world, his attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and God, so that they're without excuse. Do you see this? Do you see this? Jesus is coming. He's coming. And there's a date when he's coming again, and it's soon. It really is soon. Proverbs 20, verse 3 suggests this about your thinking. It's honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a a quarrel. We get into these arguments with God, and it's honorable, Scripture says, to stop striving with him and let him be your Savior. I'm going to pray. Next week is Easter. Church, I want to encourage you. um, We have plans for two services that'll be about an hour, one at 9.30, one at 11. And um, a couple of things about that I want to say to you um, is that there are people around you that love them enough to help them not go to hell. And you do that by sharing the good news with them, not just by being a good person and helping them, but share the gospel with them. But I promise you, I will next Sunday, and I'll do it in a way that will not embarrass you will honor God and they'll hear the good news Um, and and by the way it's just good to be together on the day of resurrection isn't it Um, we we typically have you know coffee and cookies after church um, 
But when we split the church in half, sometimes what we want to do is do that between the services because we want to foster that fellowship. So.